A very good morning to all of you. Our sermon today is titled Two Storms, taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. So let us begin with a word of prayer before I expound our text for today. Please join me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though our church remains closed at this point in time because of COVID-19, yet our hearts are open to worship you and to receive instruction from your word. And so we commit each of us to you and ask that today's sermon will give us a word of encouragement. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by giving you a short telescopic or big picture view of what we have heard thus far from this series on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this, I hope, will be able to complement to some extent the microscopic approach of the sermons that we have been hearing. And we actually need both approaches. We need the microscopic or the sermon-by-sermon -sermon exposition with its in-depth analysis and their fantastic stuff that we have heard thus far. And we also need, from time to time, a telescopic or helicopter view of the broad storyline as it develops. And so without further ado, I want to begin by taking us back to a series of five escalating conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. And it will go all the way back uh, to Mark chapter 2, but it is linked to our sermon for today. Now, the first conflict was in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, when Jesus pronounced forgiveness on a paralytic. Remember the man was lowered down from the roof? So Jesus pronounced forgiveness only to have the teachers shoot back at him, saying, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they are now accusing Jesus of encroaching on God's domain. That's a nasty accusation. The second conflict was in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, when Jesus freely mingled with the people, only for the Pharisees to again question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the, the, the subtle point here is this. How can we trust Jesus? How can we trust a man of dubious morality, since he is freely mixing with all the wrong company. The third conflict was in chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. And this time they accused Jesus, saying, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The nuance this time is this. How qualified are you to teach us about spirituality when your own disciples are so unspiritual? The fourth conflict is in chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. This was when Jesus' disciples plucked ears of grain in a field to eat on a Sabbath day. What happened next was that the Pharisees sternly challenged him, saying, Why do they... Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The innuendo here is, how can you, Jesus, be a teacher of the law when you allow your own disciples to freely break the law? 
The fifth and final conflict was in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And this is the most serious of them all. It happened when Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on a Sabbath day. You remember that story? And unlike the four earlier accounts of conflicts, the Pharisees said nothing on this occasion, but their eyes actually said it all. We are told in chapter 3 verse 2 that they watched Jesus to see if he would heal on a Sabbath so that they may accuse him. And so of the five conflicts, this one is the only time Jesus displayed his anger. He was grieved at the hardness of their heart, the scripture says. You see, the Pharisees were so blinded by legalism that they would rather Jesus did not restore the man's withered hand than heal him on a Sabbath day. Why? Because to heal is to work. And the Sabbath law clearly says that we should not be working on the Sabbath day. But they forgot that the essence of the Sabbath was for people to rest so that having fully rested, they may then go back to work. But for the man with the withered hand, his Sabbath rest is meaningless because he can't go back to work given the condition of his hand. That is why it is more important for Jesus to restore his hand so that his Sabbath rest can be meaningful rather than to just blindly obey the law, in which case his Sabbath will remain a meaningless ritual. But the religious leaders thought otherwise. The coldness of their heart led them to rigidly say, if I could paraphrase for you their thought, it will be like this. Law is law, and nobody is supposed to break the law. So let the man remain a cripple, if need be. And that was why Jesus was so angry with them. If you remember, at his baptism, the heavens tore open. That's what happens when the kingdom of God invades this world. And then when he performed his first exorcism, the gates of hell were shaken. And now as he stood before the religious leaders, it is time for daily traditions to be broken. And so Jesus went on to restore the man's withered hand while the religious leaders plotted to have him killed. That's what we are told in chapter 3 verse 6. I've got a question at this juncture. Why did the gospel writer Mark record a series of five escalating conflicts back to back, one after another. Why? The answer, it is to tell us that we have now crossed the point of no return in the conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities. Opposition to Jesus will get really heated up from now on, and his enemies will go all out in their mission to destroy him. That's the big picture summary that we are given at the end of chapter 3, verse 6. And what will be our Lord's response in the face of heightened tension and open conflict? Answer, he will have to provide even greater demonstrations of his divine authority in order to reassure his followers and calm their fears. 
And this was exactly what Mark, our gospel writer, did as his follow-up to the escalating conflicts, giving us evidences of that. And so, if you look at Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 40, for example, we are now introduced to another dimension of Jesus' power that we have never seen before. Namely, he could even command the wind and the waves to obey him. Now, this is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal to say the least. For example, I remember the time years ago when my wife and I were about to fly from Chicago to the city of Buffalo in the United States. The pilot announced on the intercom that a storm is coming our way, but not to worry. We are scheduled to take off before it arrives. But it was not to be. We were held back, and a storm descended upon our plane as it sat on the tarmac, with rain pelting down our window pane. Some 90 minutes later, we finally took off, but we are now flying in the direction of the tailwind of the storm. I tell you, it was the most turbulent flight I've ever encountered, and I was literally gripping onto my seat for most of the flight. And there were a couple of times during that flight when I thought, this is it. That's what the forces of nature can do. It creates terror and fear in the hearts of people like you and me. And you can imagine that it is much, much worse for the disciples because they were in a tiny boat amidst a mighty storm. Can you imagine their relief when the storm instantly subsided at Jesus' command? The point here is that no human being could ever command the wind and waves. And that's why we end up gripping our seats in a turbulent flight. The Old Testament also teaches us that only God can calm the waves and steal the storm. And Jesus has just done that. My friends, this is Mark's way of raising the bar when it comes to demonstrating Jesus' power amidst heightened opposition. Now that's not all. Our next two narratives in Mark also fulfill the same purpose of showing Jesus' power to a higher degree. Think about this. What's so special about the deliverance of the demoniac in chapter 5, verses 1 to 20? Well, unlike all previous exorcisms, this man is possessed by a legion of demons. He had such supernatural strength that he could just snap chains into pieces just like that. And yet, he was duly subdued by Jesus and he even regained his sanity. This is Mark's way of raising the bar to showcase Jesus' power by telling us that our Lord Jesus is mightier than even a legion of demons. And what's so special about the healing of the woman with unclean blood plus the episode of Jairus' daughter in chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. Well, unlike previous accounts of healing, this time, Jesus didn't even touch the woman with unclean blood. She 
touch him, not his body, but just his clothes. And it was enough for her to be instantly cleansed. Once again, we are seeing yet another dimension of Jesus' power that we have never seen before until now. And in the case of Jairus' daughter, remember she was already dead when Jesus got to her home. Yet Jesus walked in and instantly raised her from the dead. Now that, my friends, is the ultimate proof of Jesus as a divine being. For only God and God alone could raise someone from the dead. All these are Mark's ways of providing greater and greater demonstrations of Jesus' power amidst heightened opposition. And as further reminders that opposition to Jesus will not go away anytime soon, we are then told of the rejection of Jesus by his own village folks in Nazareth, and that's in chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, followed by the execution of John the Baptist in chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. All these accounts fit in with the overall theme of heightened opposition that we have been tracking thus far. So this leads us to our text for today in chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. It happened right after the feeding of the 5,000. So let's look at the verses again before I expound on the text. Verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when he saw, when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Now the opening verse in this passage says that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Verse 45. While the last sentence says, that the disciples had not understood about the laws. Their hearts were hardened. And that's verse 52. We could ask, we could pause and ask, what's happening here? What made Jesus force his disciples to get into the boat to leave at once? You see, the word for made them get into the boat, that word carries the idea of to compel, to drive, to force. In other words, the disciples were not willing to leave. They didn't want to go. They wanted to hang around, leaving Jesus with no choice but to compel them, to drive them 
to force them into the boat. That's the idea given in verse 45. But what is it that made the disciples so reluctant to leave? Our text does not specifically tell us why, but it seems that a clue is given at the last verse of this passage. Why? Simply because Bible writers often use the beginning and the end of a narrative to complete their story. So here's my educated guess of what is really happening then. You see, our current passage took place right after the feeding of the 5,000. Our Lord's purpose in feeding the 5,000 was to teach the disciples a very important lesson. Ask yourself, when was the last time a huge number of people were fed in a deserted place? When? It was in the Old Testament during the 40 years in the wilderness when God fed his people with manna from heaven. So, this is the lesson that Jesus wanted the disciples to learn. Just as the Father had miraculously fed their ancestors with manna in the desert, Jesus is now feeding the 5,000 in a deserted place. And the fact that he could miraculously do this with just five loaves and two fish, that is a confirmation that he is God incarnate. But alas, the disciples were unable to grasp this point because their hearts were hardened according to verse 52. Now the word for hardened in the Greek carries the idea of being covered with a thick skin. It seems that they got distracted by something else until it is as if their hearts and minds are now layered over by this distraction. That's why they couldn't grasp what Jesus was trying to tell them. Now as to what is this major distraction, we have to turn to the parallel account in the Gospel of John chapter 6. You see, John tells us something else that Mark never did. John tells us that the people, after witnessing the miracle Jesus had performed to feed the 5,000, watch this, the people wanted to make him king by force. And that's in chapter 6, verse 15 of John's Gospel. So I suggest that this is the major distraction that blindsided the disciples until they could not understand the miracle about the loaves. You see, the disciples have by now, by now they are caught in a raging storm that was unleashed by the people to make Jesus king by force if they have to. That's why I've titled our sermon today as Two Storms. The storm that the disciples were heading to in the middle of the lake is not the only storm. There's another storm that has already started on land. And this is the one that is even more frightening. I believe that the disciples really liked the idea of having Jesus crowned as king. It will benefit them too, immensely. And that's why they were so reluctant to leave when the crowd was clamoring to make this happen. But Jesus knew how dangerous this gathering storm is. Think about this. 
he has already crossed the point of no return in his conflict with the religious authorities. Therefore, any attempt to make him king will only raise the temperature to boiling point and fast-track their efforts to destroy him. But most importantly, Jesus didn't want this agenda because he knew that his mission on earth is not about a crown but a cross. It is not about ruling an earthly empire but God's universal spiritual kingdom. It is not about conquest and glory but self-sacrifice and Calvary. Because of this then, Jesus quickly did three things. First, he forced his disciples to quickly live in a boat. Then he dispersed the crowd to quash any further thought of making him king. And finally, he went up to the mountainside to pray. Guess what was his main prayer item that night? I think he must have prayed all night for his disciples to be detoxified from the seductions of earthly power. But will he succeed? Ah, back to the disciples again. Guess what? They've been rowing all night but could not reach the other side of the lake because of a fierce storm. Can you imagine that? Seasoned fishermen rowing all night and covering only three to four miles, as the Gospel of John tells us? Well, Mark chapter 6, verse 48 says that they were straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And so it was at this point that Jesus walked on the water towards the direction of the boat. Did you hear what I've just said? Jesus didn't find another boat to row to them. He walked on the water just as we would walk on land. Once again, Mark's purpose was to show yet another dimension of Jesus which we have never seen before. You see, in the previous account of a storm, when they were, when they were caught in the storm, that's in chapter 4, Jesus was on a boat and he was fast asleep. But this time around, there was no boat. It was just Jesus and the water. The point is that humans don't walk on water. The Old Testament teaches that treading on water is something that only God can do. Therefore, by walking on the water, we are given yet another proof of Jesus' divinity amidst heightened enmity. And I want you to notice something else about verse 48, the part that says, he was about to pass by them. Now the Greek word for passing by is parakomai. And you, you, you ask, what's so special about this word, Pastor Daniel? Well, do you remember the time in Exodus 33 when Moses asked to see God's glory? So what did God do then? God placed Moses in the cleft of a rock and covered him with his hand until his glory passed by Moses. Guess what? The word for passing by in Exodus 33 is also parakomai. That's the same word used for Jesus in Mark chapter 6. So this is the point. Just as God's glory passed by Moses, Jesus now walks on the water 
to pass by the disciples. This is Mark's way of equating Jesus with God. One final point. When the disciples saw Jesus, they actually thought he was a ghost in verse 49, and they cried out in fear. That's in verse 50. What did Jesus do to allay their fear? He spoke these words to them. Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now the portion that I want us to, to focus on is the middle one that says, it is I. In the original Greek version of the Bible, the original words are ego I me, which is literally translated as I am. I am. Does this sound familiar, my friends? Do you remember the time in Exodus chapter 3 when God first appeared to Moses in a burning bush? Moses then asked God for his name. And in reply, God told Moses that his name is I am. I am who I am, God said. And so the, the implication once again is pretty obvious. It is as if Jesus is saying to the disciples, if I were to take the, the liberty to paraphrase his thought, it will, it will be something like this. Listen, the person you have just seen is not a ghost. On the contrary, the person you have seen walking on water is the great I am, which in case you've forgotten, is the same name by which Yahweh revealed himself to Moses. So once again, this is Mark's way of equating Jesus with God. So in summary, brothers and sisters, the heightened tension between Jesus and the religious authorities requires Jesus to offer greater and greater demonstrations of his divinity in order to reassure his own followers and calm their fears. And this is what Jesus actually did on many occasions including when he miraculously fed the 5,000. On that occasion, however, the disciples were blindsided by the sudden euphoria to force Jesus to be their king. Because of this, they lost focus and they were unable to recognize the main purpose behind the feeding of the 5,000, which is to portray Jesus as a divine being at par with God the Father, who had also fed multitudes with manna from heaven. But the good news is that Jesus never gave up on the disciples, even when they became distracted. Instead, he offered three more evidences to help them recognize his divinity. The first was when he walked on water towards them. And this is an act that only God can do. The second was when he passes by them in the same way that God's glory passed by Moses. And the third was when he identified himself as the great I Am, which is the same name that God used for himself when he appeared before Moses. And the final result of all this, we are told in verse 51, is that the disciples were completely amazed. That phrase basically means to be thrown into wonderment, to be astounded beyond measure, to be out of one's mind. So it looks like Jesus' patience has paid off and the disciples are finally 
getting it. In fact, in, Ma in Matthew's parallel account, Matthew chapter 14, we are told that it was at this moment when the disciples worshipped Jesus saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And as I bring our sermon to a close, I have two reflections for us to take home today. First, it is interesting to me that the disciples were actually in the midst of actively following Jesus. I mean, it is not as if they were straying away from their faith and backsliding. No, they were actually in close proximity with Jesus and, and, and uh, they were staying close to him most of the time. Yet, they can be so easily derailed by earthly ambition or by a momentary loss of perspective until they, com they completely miss the teaching moment in the feeding of the 5,000. So what about us today? Is the same also happening to us even as we have spent most of our life following Christ? Yes, we have grown up through our Sunday school. Yes, we have been faithfully attending church services all these years. We have been active in church, serving in various capacities. We've been faithfully giving our tithes. We've also joined a healthy care group and so on and so on. But the questions we must ask are this. Are we attentive to God at the special moments when he displays his presence? Or have we also missed out the special teaching moments when God is revealing deep things about himself. More specifically, this COVID pandemic should have allowed us all to slow down, to stay home, and hence give us much more, many more quiet moments to be alone with God. But have we seen some new dimensions, some new things about God we've never seen before? Now, I'm not talking about earth-shaking moments when God suddenly appears in the middle of the night, you know. God is more likely to reveal His presence in the mundane and everyday routines of our life rather than to those earth-shaking moments. For example, during my recent sabbatical, in case you're not aware, I was on sabbatical leave for April and May. That's why I was off the radar. So during my recent sabbatical, I suffered a bad sprain near my ribcage. Now I've experienced muscle sprains before in other parts of my body. And it's usually because I was careless about my own posture or things like that. But this time around, I was doing my best to be careful. And I still suffered a bad sprain. And I was pretty annoyed, to be honest. And since it did not go away completely after almost a week, I took my son's advice to have a medical checkup. Guess what? The doctor discovered two other issues that had nothing to do with the sprain. He discovered that my blood pressure had shot up to 170, and I also had an enlarged liver that requires further tests. Thankfully, I'm okay now. My blood pressure is back to normal range, and the other tests have also ruled out the worst, such as cancer. But it was only when I sat silently before God that I began to see new things about Him that I've never seen before. 
You see, I was annoyed with the muscle sprain at first. But now I realize it was actually God's way of exercising His sovereignty in my life to protect me. He had been giving, giving me some cues about my health, even as, as I was trying to keep close to Him. But like the disciples, I seemed to have completely missed the cue. It also didn't help that one of the, my thumb drives, I was working and saving my stuff on a thumb drive, and so one of them suddenly crashed. That means all my sabbatical work, which is contained in that single thumb drive, is gone. So I had to redo all the PowerPoints for my sabbatical projects again, which I think added to my stress level. But looking back, I'm so thankful to have a God who cares for me even when I was oblivious to the dangers of my own health. But you know what? It requires me to be silent in His presence before I can discern what God is saying or doing in my life. So it is for you. Our second reflection from today's sermon is that while Jesus sent His disciples into a storm, He also goes to meet them in the storm. Now this thought is especially comforting for all of us in view of the current COVID pandemic that we are facing now. Indeed, I dare say that a current COVID pandemic is not just a storm. It is the perfect storm for the whole world. It has caused so much disruption to our daily lives that many wonder if things can ever be the same again even after the worst is over. And so we know that businesses have filed for bankruptcy. Companies are retrenching. In the United States alone, some 35 million people have filed for unemployment benefits over the last three months. In Singapore, our GDP is expected to shrink by 7%. Many are worried about the loss of income and whether they can easily find jobs again. On top of that, domestic violence is also on the increase. While there are no easy answers to the current pandemic, allow me to just say two things. First, if there's one place we would rather be when facing this crisis, I think it is Singapore. I'd rather be here than anywhere else. Not many countries in the world have an efficient government plus the resources to minimize job loss in the midst of this crisis. And uh, we have to continue to pray for our leaders who are doing their best to be on top of this situation. Second, as a people of faith, let's take comfort that our Lord who has uh, sent us into this storm, let's take comfort that He will also come to meet us in the middle of the storm. More than that, He comes to us as the one who walks on the water, the one who will show us His deliverance as He's passing by us. And He comes also as the one who declares Himself to be the great I Am in the midst of this current pandemic. On our part, we just have to wait patiently for His deliverance and also tune our ears and our hearts in silence to hear what He wants to say to each of us. Will you covenant to do that and hang on in faith to our God until the storm is over?
Let us pray. Lord Jesus, in the same way that you have walked to the disciples in the midst of a storm, we ask that you may also come to us in the midst of this current pandemic. Help us to be patient and unswerving in faith as we, as we wait for your deliverance. Grant that we may also see some new things about you, things we would otherwise not have seen had it not been for this pandemic. So we commit ourselves to you for protection, for sustenance, and also for deliverance. And we offer the simple prayer in a most precious name. Amen.